Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten and today it is my great pleasure and honor to be joined by José Batsulaika, Emeritus Professor of Basque Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno. Hello, Joseba, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Now, although for some, especially those who tend to first think about bad things, the topic of this Voices episode might already be clear from the reference to the Basque country. For those who don't think badly at first and who haven't understood the topic, we will be talking about terrorism, and I am using air quotes here. Before starting our conversation, however, I would like to express my gratitude for your willingness to join me here, Joseba. In a time like ours, when the concept of terrorism is once again all over the place, we only just commemorated 9-11's 20th anniversary, air quotes here again, the trial on the terror attacks in Paris from 2015 just started, and last week the leader of the Shining Path movement, Peru's own so-called terrorist movement, died in jail. So in this period of terror-ridden discourses, I am particularly happy to talk to one of the first scholars who let critical and critical the theory and critical thinking enter into the study of terrorism. That you furthermore come from a region that used to be known for and personally knew and studied ETA, the so-called Basque terrorist group, and this have a wider knowledge of the phenomenon of terrorism than just the recent Muslim wave, and again, air quotes here, of terrorism, doubles this pleasure to talk to you. So again, thank you, Joseba, for joining me here. Now, as the many virtual quotations marks I already had to declare show, Although we might think we understand what we are talking about when we talk about terrorism, this might actually not be the case. Now, in your book, Terror and Taboo, which you wrote with William A. Douglas, and that had a major effect on the study of terrorism, you refer to 109 different definitions of terrorism that were studied by Alex Schmidt in 1983. Now, this shiftiness or even plasticity of the term is obviously very problematic for the study of this phenomenon, no? Yes, uh, thank you for the invitation, first Christophe, again. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the way I came to the study of terrorism is through my own work in the Basque country. Uh, when, when I had to do my dissertation, uh, I took I chose as the topic uh, was political violence. This was in the in the 70s, and I did an ethnography of mass political violence. Uh, and uh, while I was writing this uh, this dissertation and then publishing the book, mass violence metaphor and sacrament, there were at the same time there was a committee of international. Uh, terrorism experts. So mm -hmm. it confronted me what was the value of my own knowledge, ethnographic knowledge of the violence versus a kind of a technical scientific terrorism discourse of, of this violence. So that, that led me into studying the premises and the discourse of terrorism. And uh, after I published my ethnography, 
I went into studying, and that's how that's how we got into these issues, and that's how I published Terror and Taboo with my colleague Bill Douglas. Uh, as you say, there were 109 definitions, but the, those were not enough for the former uh, CIA director William Casey, who who lamented that he did not include quite other few kinds of terrorism that he. Uh, he was uh, uh, the director during the Reagan era, mm -hmm. that the, the Soviet unions were getting uh, uh, practice. So they wanted to expand into more definitions yet. So it, yeah, it is part of the shiftiness that you mentioned. The whole discourse has uh, several types of, I don't know, plots, premises, definitions that, are, that if you look at them analytically, they become obviously contradictory and problematic. And, uh, and uh, you could say that these definitions uh, for the current type of terrorism, again, those definitions are still uh, more awkward because those definitions were essentially about uh, nationalist uh, groups like the IRA or like, like ETA that I was studying. Uh, that's it, uh, kind of uh, underground movements that were kind of somehow mm, looked for some kind of a, a, a national uh, liberation movement, or they were they were overall kind of organizations that had their own structure, their own history. They were attached to a certain kind of mm, political entity, a, a state or sub-state uh, entity. Whereas after 9-11, a lot of those uh, structural elements kind of no longer apply. Now it seems to be terrorism is uh, all this uh, uh, Middle East area that includes a whole bunch of nations against which the US-led counterterrorism is now involved. So you could say that all of those definitions are kind of even more shifting nowadays than they were uh, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. Now, okay, thanks. And uh, to continue on, on this shiftiness, and, and for as much as, as, as this makes the study of terrorism difficult, I think they're even more problematic for the reality of the phenomenon of terrorism. Who is a terrorist? What is terrorism? Who and above all, who decides who is a terrorist and who decides what is terrorism? Uh, there are a couple of, of, of funny examples here, funny in, 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 in a cynical way. Nelson Mandela was a terrorist before, but then he became a hero. And the same obviously holds for Yasser Arafat. Both men even won the Nobel Peace Prize, which is a good thing if you are a terrorist. But besides these two men, so many other people have passed so easily from the one side to the other, probably even without knowing they supposedly changed sides. They were just doing and fighting their own fight. In fact, when does a guerrilla fighter become a terrorist? And what about state terrorism, the terrorist style violence performed by those who are on the supposedly good, that is the defining side? So the plasticity of the concept is extremely troublesome, not just for the sake of the study of it, but especially, I think, for real life of the real people in the field. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes, yes. You just hit in the, in the right uh, bottoms. Uh, uh, who decides who is a terrorist? Well, uh, the State Department in the U.S., uh, mm. essentially, they have a list of terrorist groups, and uh, in this 
shifting as we are talking about. You could be in one year and you can be out the next year. And uh, you mentioned people like Mandela and Arafat, who were Nobel Prize winners, yet they were also terrorists. Oh. But you could go in, in a in a in a quite a, a remarkable list of people who were uh, super friendly with the U.S. and then became arch terrorists. Well, people like uh, Noriega, I mean, he, mm. he had collaborated with the CIA, then he became a, a terrorist. Even Gaddafi was, uh, for a while, uh, he had a lot of uh, dealings with the CIA and he was very friendly to it. And then he became this uh, portrayal of terrorism. Saddam Hussein, as you know well, I mean, he was a, a uh, he collaborated uh, with the U.S. in the fight against Iran and then suddenly turned against the arch enemy. Uh, the blind sheikh, the Omar Abdul, he was in the U.S. Uh, with visas uh, given by the CIA in this fight during the Reagan era against the Soviet Union. So he came to the United States to pretty much find Mujahideen to fight in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And then he became the arch enemy and he became, he was condemned to life in prison. And I think he, this uh, trial, uh, which from many points of view uh, was a sham, even for the New York Times, that became a major, major factor what happened mm -hmm. and 9-11 happened. Bin Laden himself was fighting hand in hand with the CIA in Afghanistan. Do you do, uh, if you may interrupt, do you think this shiftiness is, is actually one of the, if, if one could use this term very cautiously, a cause of terrorism, or do you think that's not an issue? I think it's very much uh, the cause, what you could call the, the self-fulfilling prophecy of mm. I mean, you create your own your own enemies in a way. The mm. people who did the the 9/11 and um, and the people who did the first attack on the twin towers, it was this group that had been fighting with the CIA in the the very same guys and the very same guys who were very much under the FBI's vigilance here in the United States. And so it was. It was a weird fact how they suddenly turned against their own former uh, uh, bosses and did that. But you could say, in a sense, that the people who did it, they had been trained by the CIA and they had been armed by the CIA. The very guys who did the attack on the twin towers. So you are in a way creating your own enemy in that regard. Uh, the Taliban now. Are they terrorists or are they not terrorists? Mm. Well, the State Department will tell us. Uh, right now, they are not. Mm. But we imagine the Taliban very associated with the terrorists. They are fighting the United States. I mean, no, but at the same time, they are not Al-Qaeda. So mm. uh, in their previous, in their previous uh, life, the Taliban were the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviets. And then they were obviously very much part of the of the U.S.-led coalition against the Soviets. But then they became uh, kind of uh, harbored uh, Osama bin Laden, so they became terrorists. Right now, they are not cataloged as terrorists, but in the future, you never know. 
And it wouldn't be surprising at all that the Taliban began again, become again uh, uh, friendly or become again uh, uh, allied with the U.S. in the fight against Al-Qaeda. So there are there is this shiftiness. Yet you could say that there there are moments in which a guerrilla fighter versus terrorists, there is a, there is a meaning to that difference, and that a guerrilla fighter can turn into a terrorist. This has been one of the things that has been said, for example, many times about the Basque uh, group ETA. Mm. They were obviously very much considered a guerrilla group when they were fighting uh, Franco's uh, uh, dictatorial uh, uh, regime in Spain that continued until 1975. ETA began in 1960. And so they were very much a, a guerrilla group and they were very much uh, the European left was very sympathetic to them. Uh, you could have people like uh, Olaf Palm, the, the prime minister of Sweden, um, collecting money for them in the streets in 75 uh, mm. because they were fighting against Franco. Yet, when you had a democratic regime in Spain after in the post-Franco era, they were perceived largely as a terrorist group. Mm. Uh, so there is a sense in which in which conditions you are and the kind of objectives and 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 tactics you use can turn you into more a terrorist-like group. And key, a key part in this definition of terrorism, which is kind of using violence or threat of violence for political purposes uh, against, by using kind of innocent civilians as bystanders and targeting them deliberately, knowing they are innocent. This component is a key part of uh, terrorism. If you are just fighting uh, an army, then you are just a guerrilla. But if you are using collateral civilians, then it turns into a terrorist group. So, so there is a sense in which you can distinguish, yet what I would complain is about turning terrorism, everything that, everything that is pretty much uh, violence and everything that, that the, the state considers uh, to be a threat to its legitimacy, turning into terrorism, that then becomes a concept that conflates all sort of quite different phenomena and quite different groups as if they were the same, and they are dealt with with the same characteristics of uh, just sheer criminality with no political legitimacy of any kind. That's when your discourse becomes very much mm. a, an obstacle to understanding the things, and it becomes, uh, uh, it naturalizes, generalizes, turns turns into a single thing, things that are quite different. Because, I mean, there are, one thing is that there are acts of violence, there are threats, there are kidnappings, there are killings, but if all of them are, are kind of, uh, uh, terrorists, then it's quite a different thing. It's not the mm -hmm. same thing. Uh, 
a murder or a terrorist killing. Mm. It's not the same thing, a threat or a terrorist threat. So that's where things become complicated. Mm. You, you just mentioned a word I think that, that's very important for your study on this, and, and that is that you claim, and I'm probably being a bit too summarizing here, but you claim that terrorism is or presents itself first and foremost as a discourse, a, a discourse that is profoundly related to power. However, as a discursive term, it is extremely problematic, like you just also mentioned. Any term or concept, if we are to use it, should add knowledge to the facts that we purport or associate with that term. This, however, does not seem to be the case with the term or the discourse of terrorism. In fact, the term and the discourse are more of a hindrance to understanding the variety of phenomena that have been arbitrarily or not placed under this denominator of terrorism. Why do you think that notwithstanding all this negativity or all these problematics involved with this terminology, we haven't stopped using this? Well, uh, one thing is the political convenience of it, for sure. You know, before 1970, if you look at the indexes of most uh, major newspapers and news organizations, you know, the term in the index, the term terrorism did not exist until 1970. After 1970, they began using the term terrorism in their index. Uh, so things like, uh, like Kennedy assassination in 1963, that was not a terrorist act. It did not figure terrorism as a concept. It figured assassination, kidnapping, all sort of violence, but not terrorism per se. After 1970, 1972 was a, a key year, the killing of 11 Israeli athletes in the Munich Olympics was decisive mm. in taking the notion of terrorism uh, widespread throughout the media uh, discourse of. So then the discourse of terrorism very much took over and described many things that previously were that, I mean, assassination, mm. kidnapping, then they were, they were terrorism. So, so it created this unified concept that became sort of a, a uh, uh, the ultimate threat to the to the Western civilization. So an entire mythology was invested into into the notion of it, and um, and a lot of uh, a lot of fantasy also, where you where you project a lot of your fears, your worst fears, and you had. I mean, in the 1980s in the U.S., nobody remembers the terrorist act in the mm. 70s, 80s. Yet, in the 1980s, you ask the American populace, what was the enemy, the threat, number one, and it was frequently terrorism. There had never been anything, but this, this fear that was created discursively, there were terrorists that were happening in the Middle East and other parts, but not in the U.S., but even in the U.S., this was the, the major. So, it it had the political convenience of labeling anything that becomes uh, uh, inimical to your to your interests. Initially, in the 80s, with the Soviet Union, which is kind of a terrorism, became a, a, the bogeyman uh, in a way for communism. Uh, it was uh, 
But what was a sideshow initially, it increasingly became a, a, a reality and increasingly became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy for the, that's what I argue in, in this book, the, the self-fulfilling prophecy of terrorism. Mm. So, so, but, and you can just say, well, if it is nothing but fantasy, nothing but mythology, you could just, no, it's not that easy at all. Once, I mean, fantasy is in a way where you invest your subjectivity and the fantasy creation of, of a monster like terrorism, you cannot dissolve it easily at all. It becomes very much part of the reality. The fantasy is not the kind of an unreal dreamy thing. It is ultimate real that that it where you have your fears and your worst uh, uh, premonitions. So in that regard, it becomes uh, it becomes a, 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 a discourse that may force you, like it has happened in the post 9/11 uh, political world led by the U.S. It can lead you into kind of overreaction. These wars in Afghanistan in a totally, totally out of proportion because they correspond to your own fantasy world of what that terrorist threat it is. And you are turning something like Al Qaeda. If a few hundred fighters that were kind of living in the in the, in the Afghanistan mountains, you turn them into this enemy that, in your own imagination, you are creating to a big. And now, we are trying to get out of it. Uh, Biden is promising that the end of, the, of these forever wars. That's what Obama also said. But it's very very difficult because mm -hmm. we have created this monster through our own discourse. Mm. Now, up until now, um, we have been talking about the linguistic or discursive problems related to terrorism, but this might be considered as a bit reductive, even maybe a little bit repulsive or single-minded on our part. Because even if there are many linguistic and discursive problems of definition related to the concept of terrorism, in the end, there are generally some very real and not linguistic victims left behind on terrorism trail. And we should always be very careful not to forget about these victims. I think you can only but agree with this. Yes, yes, of course, absolutely. There were there were 3,000 people uh, killed uh, by the 9-11 attacks. There you have it. I mean, that is not a fantasy uh, mm. as such. What um, I mean, obviously, uh, there are, uh, I mean, it, it reminds one what happened. I mean, this creation of a global concept. I mean, in my initial work, I did compare with what happened with the Inquisition in the Middle Ages. There were obviously all sort of crimes then to all sort of rituals, all sort of, uh, yet, it was the church itself, in a way, that turned these magical traditions, etc., into this worldwide anti-church monster through inquisitorial means, uh, and so threats and enemies everywhere. Uh, uh, so this creation of the global phenomenon is what terrorism discourse uh, uh, does, in a way. But obviously, there are crimes. Uh, like these 3,000. So what uh, what this 
leads me is into considering who these terrorists themselves are, subjectively who they are. And obviously, if you think of something like 9-11, an important component of, of it is the suicidal aspects, mm. uh, the, the so-called death instinct. And then in Freudian psychoanalysis, the death instinct is very much uh, part of their, of their action. Uh, not that all so-called terrorists are suicidal in any way, yet particularly after 9-11, this component of suicide has become, in a way, uh, uh, if not dominant, very relevant uh, to this kind of activity. And um, you have to uh, examine what makes these people suicidal or what it is. Certainly being suicidal is nothing, uh, nothing uh, uh, rare. I mean, in a country like the United States, you have a yearly, I don't know, like 15,000 suicides. So in a way, turning your suicidal impulses into political <coughs> rebellion is not something that surprising. In the 9-11, there were 19 suicides that meant, well, uh, uh, so this this suicidal component and this uh, uh, death instinctual type of activity, I guess there are situations in which people feel uh, in this kind of a corner. They feel on the edge. They feel like life is no longer tolerable. So it is their recourse to suicide uh, and in the process using this uh, terroristic method in which uh, you engage in a type of activity that has no self-correction that is going to be deadly for you and for others so that you are giving this message that of an intolerable situation. No? So so it is, uh, it is this reality that obviously you have to examine in a way in, in what context is this happening what is the history of this suicidal type of activity and uh, and uh, and just examine it and just um, and, and act accordingly and so it's not that people become suicides out of nothing or that suicidal impulses are in their genes it is it is telling you about a political context or some kind of a context where where people are going mad. And madness is very much part of our reality. We can turn mad anybody. And so it is a kind of madness that, um, that you have to confront and accept as, as, as uh, part of modern life. So it's not that because you have gone mad and suicidal, you are inhuman, or because you have gone mad and suicidal. I mean, whatever you have done, there is no, there is no background to it. That's how mm. I look at this. Mm. Now, indeed, if I may continue on the uh, path opened by the last question in in your book, Terrorism: The Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, you compared Truman Capote's In Cold Blood with the 9/11 Commission report. And I found that a very powerful comparison because, as you show, uh, so cunningly show, Capote did go out of his way to try and understand the killers he wrote about. But this was not the case in the 9-11 report. 
as you just said already, that there seems to have been no interest in the terrorists. This makes me think that I am allowed to say that contrary to the real victims who are there, there are hardly any, ever any real perpetrators. There are almost these mythological monsters or cliches as terrorists. They tick the general boxes, but they never tick any individual ones. And this not just in the words of those who claim to be combating terrorism, also the terrorists themselves love their terrorist masks. I was reading up on the only terrorist survivor of the Bataclan attack, the Belgian Salah Abdeslam, and he too was just following the usual script. Now, do you think that a capote like reading of or even interaction with so-called terrorists could be possible and could this have a positive outcome or is that last aspect a little bit too much? Uh, well, uh, a capote was very aware that uh, the the multiple killers he was talking about, they were killers and they mm. killed uh, totally innocent people. So in that regard, they were monstrous. The same way that the, the terrorists that did the 9-11 were uh, mad uh, suicidal monsters in mm. committing this terrible crime. Uh, so, but what Capote did with these multiple murderers is he tried to understand what led them to that madness. Mm. And uh, so he got close to them, he talked to them, he even empathized with them. Uh, one of them, he saw that he was a kind of an artist. He put himself in their shoes. He realized that one of them, he could have been an artist like himself, Capote was, and vice versa. He saw that he himself could have turned into a killer, like, mm. like his, his uh, uh, protagonist in this novel world. Uh, so that is what Capote, the great gift of Capote's book in Cold Blood is that he takes you inside these murderers uh, madness and the murderer who himself kind of cannot comprehend how he has done what he has done mm. and he gives you such a detailed description he gives you uh, such a contextual uh, writing of the thing that you you feel pity for these guys you see their monstrosity and in humanity, but also you see their humanity from which history they come, what happened to them in their childhood, what kind of a... So that is what makes you understand uh, what homicide in the in the US, this ordinary homicide is, that's the great gift. With terrorists, that is essentially totally forbidden. <coughs> you, you are in any way allowed to empathize with the terrorists, of course. You are not allowed to kind of get inside the terrorists, let alone kind of fall for the terrorists, like Capote did for one of them. He kind of almost fell in love with, with the guy. I mean, if you do the sort of thing, you are already a pro-terrorist. So you are not allowed to that kind of uh, uh, identification and the result of it, in a way, is that you write about them from a very superficial point of view because you haven't gotten into the desires, the passions, the fears, the histories of these killers. 
So that makes you, uh, in the end, ignorant of their subjectivities. And the consequences of this ignorance can be really uh, uh, devastating. Uh, why? Because in the end, you end up ignoring. I mean, take think we mentioned Saddam Hussein before. Mm, the main reason why uh, the U.S. went to war with Saddam Hussein, it was later revealed, at least one of the key uh, reasons was that Saddam Hussein himself was bluffing to his uh, uh, to his other regional leaders that he had weapons of mass destruction. He was doing it to install fear in them. And the American intelligence services apparently picked this information and were unable to sort out that he was just bluffing. In other words, the key to successful counterterrorism is to know your enemy when they are bluffing and when they are not. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. was unable to know when Saddam Hussein, who had been their close associate for years in the war against Iran, they could never sort him out, and mm -hmm. they and he kind of uh, uh, he kind of uh, uh, deceived them with his bluffing. That was a key reason. In other words. You have to know you are a terrorist enemy. And if you are unable to get into his motivation, why he's doing what he's doing, if you are unable to get into his fears, his fantasies, his desires, you in the end ignore the so-called terrorists and you end up fooling yourself and getting trapped into self-fulfilling actions mm. that will end up coming back to you. And that's how, in a way, the whole uh, Iraq war against Saddam Hussein became a total catastrophe for the U.S. And mm. after the Iraq, it this created ISIS. Uh, and it is going on and on because of your own ignorance of the, mm. of the situation. And that's how we look at this. Yeah, there is one thing I, I think that, that I, I also, I obviously agree that you have to know before you can judge. But on the other hand, Capote did come out rather destroyed from this experience yes, 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 in yes, cold yes, blood. Yes, yes. So even the knowledge, it might help you, but on the other hand, it will destroy you. So there's there's this 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 counter effect I think that 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 if if you if you see Capote yes he he was able to understand and he in a certain sense was able to identify in 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 the fact not identify with the killer but with the possibility of the other person being able to become an artist like him but also he being able to become a a a, a killer that kind of destroyed him so th there is the incredible negativity involved with this knowledge. But maybe yes. for for scholarly reasons and for the, uh, the 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 possibility of avoiding huge terrorist uh, attacks, it it obviously is required to know these things, which unfortunately yeah. they are. But anyway, if 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 that's I may continue, great, that's yes. a great point, uh, Christoph. Uh, uh, which is why it is much easier to ignore yes. the, the the terrorist subjectivity. Yes. It is yes. too troublesome. It is too much of a madness. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. And, and 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 to continue this on, on, on this unwillingness, and, and if, if there is one figure in your many works on terrorism that receives the lion's share of your criticism, that is the expert. And here maybe you can also turn this somewhat into a more personal story, if I can ask you to do that. In fact, you, like you told in the beginning, you are no expert or you didn't start out as an expert on terrorism. You were an ethnologist and you studied an ethnos or a people or a nation that happened to include what uh, would be called terrorists today. But your interest was never primarily in a category, but in actual people like the Basque people and the people in, in the Basque country who became uh, violent. Now. Would, would I be too harsh here to say that once again uh, we need fewer experts? Well, uh, I certainly uh, they became for me kind of uh, what I was trying to understand uh, in a kind of uh, I look into this community where which had produced several uh, ETA members and kind of uh, there was a lot of uh, political and moral dilemmas involved in their actions and the community at the end of the my stay my work uh, we had a meeting where they asked me to talk what had i learned and i kind of was all um, unsure what i had learned but i just i i, I looked at some of the points in which uh, mm, i saw they were acting a kind of a in a life or death sacramental type of way, way like like former priests used to used yeah. to be doing, etc. So uh, whereas the experts' explanations are much more uh, cavalier in that regard, uh, much more also ignorant of the people that were acting there. And these these international experts, what they did is they sat in a London hotel. They stay there a few months and they issued a report on Basque terrorism. Uh, what did they know? I mean, none of them had been in the Basque country. They knew nothing about Basque history or culture, except some peripheral thing there. But they knew this technical thing about that the Basque uh, ETA was terrorism-like. And, and the report, one third of it is, it was writing about the other terrorist groups in Europe, the Baden Meinhof and and etc. The IRA, it was everything the same thing. Well, for an anthropologist, they are totally different contexts. I mean, the violence per se might be similar, but that's kind of the unspeakable act of the killing itself. But we, you need to understand in that context. So, in that regard, for me, uh, uh, being an expert is part of this. Uh, uh, ignoring the reality because knowing the subjectivity of the terrorists that uh, you are saying can be too troublesome. So in that regard, I look at this uh, with a notion of of uh, Lacan's uh, passion for ignorance. Lacan mm. would say that we have this passion for love, passion for hate, and passion for ignorance because it is too harsh mm. to know about some realities. There is this that famous philosophizing by Ransfeld, who said there are known uh, knowns and known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. But he forgot to say that there are known unknowns, things <laughs> that we pretend we don't know, but we really know. Yeah. So there is so there is that kind of reality, and and the expert, I think, mm, too frequently 
takes this umbrella of a technical scientific and a lot of moralizing mm. to in the end not to ignore the reality or mm. under which conditions and and in that regard i mean if you look at things like afghanistan now the withdrawal what american generals were saying all along is they totally completely ignored anything about afghanistan their culture their history and this is an ignorance that is quite willing is quite uh, uh, deliberate they don't want to know because i mean otherwise you cannot operate as an imperial military power so it is this ignorance this at the very center of terrorism studies and i've complained about about that uh, all along yeah no, okay thanks to conclude in in the so-called war on terror one of the main means of fishing out or of eliminating these so-called terrorists that contactless and even personless type a particular preference seems to be by given to another means of context and contactless and certainly personless weapon the drone uh, your latest work hellfire from paradise ranch on the front lines of drone warfare is on this new type of weapon and its usage would you like to share your thoughts about this quickly in conclusion yeah well is the latest the latest uh, counterterrorism uh, uh, warfare uh, it's a kind of a manhunt uh, uh, and it is done mostly from near Las Vegas in southern Nevada. So I did an ethnography of these, of these. They call themselves hunters, which is done. is not a metaphor. It is kind of a literal manhunt. And uh, so it is this this fantasy in the end that we are killing our animal-like uh, people. And always have been these metaphors of dogs and, and things in warfare. But it's also this fantasy that in the end you are not responsible for what a robotic drone is doing and that it will never come back to bad you. And it is this kind of uh, all of the elements we have been talking, the self-perpetuating, the, the self-fulfilling qualities of it. They have been acknowledged by the U.S. Uh, military men themselves. And But what it is mm, uh, tremendous for me is this self-deception and again ignorance by which an entire american public the, the basic american so-called liberal media how they buy into all these mm, lies that they are just essentially killing terrorists when it is obvious from testimonies from the military themselves that 90 percent or more of these uh, victims, which they claim to be terrorists, in no way are terrorists. They are terrorists through their own definitions, like what they call the they call the signature strike, by which every man who is in a certain territory they define as terrorists. I mean, large regions, entire provinces. So any man that is killed in that region. It is all. It is automatically defined as terrorists. So this self-deception by which somebody like Obama, whom we consider so progressive and so moral, the self-deception that went into this is for me astonishing. So I try to examine how is it possible this kind of a self-deception. And right now, I mean, Biden's dilemma after 
after uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and this chaotic uh, Kabul withdrawal is what to do with drones because the drone seems to be the only the only weapon he has in his arsenal once the soldiers have been removed and uh, and he knows what happened to Obama with this that he ended up killing thousands of people that were innocent and he doesn't want to go into that he has promised to end the forever wars and he's caught in this dilemma right now in this bind. So it will be it will be uh, 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 interesting to see what happens. He right until now for these first seven eight months he put the whole program of drones under revision. So they haven't been operating, but he did authorize. Mm, at the end in Kabul when they were leaving that drone attack that killed 10 innocent civilians another another tragedy so he knows how dangerous this is but again what is astonishing is the way in which like in this case they can just kill 10 innocent and obviously they would say they were they, it was some terrorists they they had bombs and it again and again and again is all a lie, you know. And they have to keep deceiving the public and deceiving themselves uh, that that these are kind of terrorists. So there is there is this dilemma in which you have defined your enemy everything in terrorist terms. You have allowed yourself to kill them even if they are uh, innocent, because this is just this is not murder. It is so called targeted killing. And you allow yourself this notion like signature strikes or, or you justify it. And, and in the end, you're just uh, creating a bigger, a bigger monster through your own self-fulfilling action. So, so this is why I think the whole terrorism paradigm and these terrorist wars and this declaring of the war on terror, a war that by the very definition of what terrorism is, it is non-finishable. I mean... Mm. The terrorism is kind of a formless type of activity that has no settled rules, no settled structure. So it will be a never ending. So it is a total trap. So I think at the origin of this is is the 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 faulty notion or the faulty discourse, the 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 non-reflexive getting into types of thinking that in the end are primitive. Like like the Inquisition in the night, mm. and they're based on taboo, they're mm. based on fear, they're based on threats, they're based mm. on, and it bec they become self fulfilling and and self defeating in the guard. That's that's my view of this. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Joseba. Thank you for this very engaging talk, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I have. Terrorism is not only a very shifty concept; it is also a very tricky topic to talk about and just like in your books i think you confront it always in a very elegant way and this is i think for a scholar a remarkable achievement so thank you again for that thank you christoph yeah, thank you thank you also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at picked voices and you dear listeners if you like our volunteer work here at picked you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join PICT, please visit our website. My name is Christoph van Houten. Thank you and goodbye.